member of the church, and he's an older gentleman, probably older than I am by about 15 years, and he let me know very plainly that I could not offer him any counsel. He said, um, I don't know why we're getting together for lunch, but uh, I, can't, I can't learn from you. I said, okay. Now, there's this part of me that's competitive and kind of, you know, I can bull up at times like that. Thankfully, that one didn't win in that moment. Um, but he just let me know that because of my age, that there was really nothing that I could say that he could learn from. And can I confess that I feel that today? I, I feel that today in talking about the glory of age in that I'm 45. I'll acknowledge it. I've earned every one of these years. My mom reminds me every birthday, aren't you glad I let you live another year? <laughs> I've earned every one of them, so I'm going to rejoice in them. But I am only 45. I know that there are members in this church who have years of experience beyond what, what I have. And I remember in talking with this gentleman, kind of feeling in that moment, which, which side of me is going to respond in this moment? And I remember saying to him, the good news is, God's word is older than both of us. And so if there's counsel from God's word, why don't we worry about that most? Can we have that posture as a church today? If there's counsel from God's word for us as a church, no matter your age, no matter if you're one of our founding members in this church, no matter what age or season or stage of life that you are in, there is counsel that can be gleaned from God's word for us. And so with that in mind, would you pray with me as we begin to work our way through Psalm chapter 90. Father, we ask today that your word would open our eyes to see afresh the glory of the years that are a gift from you. And Lord, may that inform how we are called to live today. Lord, where our mind needs renewing, renew it. Where our heart needs refreshing, pour out your spirit on us, God. Where our hands and knees need strengthening for service, we pray for that from you as well. As you are both the source and the point of all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, in Psalm chapter 90, we actually have a, a bit of a different psalm. It's one of the only psalms captured by Moses. So it would be one of the oldest songs in this hymnal, in Psalm chapter 90. And, and I want to point that out because it's unusual for us to kind of point out the header. Perhaps in, on your app or in your Bible, you'll see that it says, From Everlasting to Everlasting, or a title similar to that. And then it says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Now, I, I start there. It's, it's unusual to say, you know, like this is Psalm 90, just the header. I start there today instead of in verse 1 because I think it's important for us to understand what's happening in Moses' life at the time that this psalm is written. It helps us to, to understand the, the heart of the psalm. It helps us to, to, to learn rightly from it as we understand that Moses at this point in his life is a man advanced in years. 
He's advanced in years. But it's easy for us when we talk about a character like Moses to think about maybe the felt board version of Moses. And, and so since I'm speaking to our older generation primarily, most of you will understand Sunday school felt boards. We don't have those in Sunday school anymore, but we think about the felt board version of Moses, don't we? We can see the basket that was cut out so carefully by that Sunday school teacher as they put it up on that felt board. And as we learn about all of these amazing ways that God showed himself faithful to Moses. So we can think about felt board Moses rather than any of Moses' failings in life. It's easy for us to kind of do that with biblical characters at times. Where we remember felt board more than failure. And, and I point that out not because I'm trying to bring Moses down in any of our eyes. What I actually want to do is raise Christ up in all of our eyes. So I'm not trying to tear down patriarchs of the faith. I'm trying to say the point of all of Scripture is Christ himself. Let's understand rightly, Moses went through some stuff. Like imagine, it's an amazing story of God's faithfulness, but that young man started out his life not even knowing who his parents were. He would grow up and then be pursued by who he grew up as his brother, who is now the Pharaoh, who he will watch be killed as the, the seas collapse in on him. There's amazing things that happen in his life that we can highlight as the faithfulness of God, but let's not act like that wouldn't have been confusing to Moses in his day. Why is it that my life has looked like this? What about the failings? This, this particular psalm, most scholars would agree that it is written after a point of failure in the history of the people of God. It's written at a point of failure when they begin to, uh, they've come out of, all of the people except for Joshua and Caleb, they do not have faith to enter into the land that God has called them into. They're actually refusing to trust God. They're refusing to follow Moses. Kind of takes the shine off those memories of Moses, doesn't it, as this great leader. The people were refusing to follow him. He had led them to this point, out of Egypt, but rather because of the events that are captured in Numbers chapter 13, rather than going into the land that they were called to by faith, they are going to turn back in unbelief. And this people that Moses is leading are going to experience the judgment of God and they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It kind of begins to set a bit of a back backdrop to this psalm for us, doesn't it? Helps us not to approach, us, approach it and just go, well, I'm, not, I'm no Moses, so like, how can this speak to me? Gosh, it must be nice to have such a blessed life like that so that these words would apply to you. I say these things up front today to say that no matter what you've experienced in this life to this point, you are where you are by the grace of God, and these words are for you today. These words are for you today. I want us to approach the word of God with faith that says, teach me, O Lord. I'm jumping ahead of myself, though. See, this psalm is Moses' personal response and prayer out of that circumstance in Numbers chapter 13. He's turning to God in prayer 
And he's seeking something far beyond the moment. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt preparing to be called to the ministry. He spent another 40 years in the desert preparing to carry out the ministry that he was called to and 40 years in the desert carrying it out. There were disappointments in this life. He had failures just like we all do. But he went the distance to finish what God had called him to. And the distance that he couldn't go, he saw because of the faith that God provided. How many of us need to wake up to that truth for our own lives today? How many of us focus on the failures? How many of us think about finishing strong and going the distance that God requires in this life? But how few of us actually see with faith the distance that we can't go? How many of us see by faith beyond the day of our own death? Now, I'm not here to preach to the church of the pre-dead. I'm here to preach to the church called to be alive in Christ. So let's read with that in mind. Moses' life is not only an illustration for us, but because of this psalm being included in God's word, Moses' life is instructive for us as well. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or, you, or ever you had formed the earth and the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Notice in his advanced years where Moses begins. He is pondering God's eternal nature. He's pondering God's eternal nature. He doesn't start off with, what the heck, Lord? He starts off with, you were there from the beginning. You will be there to the end. I love that. Most translations will read dwelling place. I love that it's dwelling place. If you read through the Psalms, you will see a part of God's character and, and who God is as our loving Father, as one who is a refuge in time of trouble. And I think that's a right way for us to look, a mighty fortress, somebody that we can run to when there are troubles in our lives. But Moses uses different language here. He says, God, you're home. You're a dwelling place. See, a refuge is meant for battle. A mighty fortress is meant for battle. But a dwelling place is meant for regular daily communion. Too often we'll skip through words like that and not think about the implications of that. He's saying your eternal nature is home for us. Moses, crying out to God in the midst of wondering what's going on, in the midst of the people revolting against him, says, you are my dwelling place. I can find rest in you. The Bible declares that God is the creator of the universe. 
Moses acknowledges that when he says here, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Now the Bible talks about eternity in two different ways. It talks about eternity in the past, and it talks about eternity in the future. In theology, we call this a part of the self-existence of God. He was, he is, he ever will be. Scripture attests to his eternal nature, both in the past and in the future. So we see how eternity can be actually used both literally and figuratively. And figuratively, it talks about eternity as an existence that may have a beginning but will have no end. We might think of that like the human soul or angels, but then you have literally, which is an existence in eternity that has neither an ending or a beginning, and that is unique to God himself. Time has a past, time has a present, time has a future, eternity doesn't. Eternity is infinite. It doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an end. It doesn't have any limit to this ever-abiding presence. And that's what Moses is calling out to. He says, you are a dwelling place for all of time. Isn't it instantly comforting? Just in this moment, think about how comforting it is to think about the eternal nature of God. It's one of those things that your mind just cannot give enough time and thought to. And yet there's something that happens in your soul where you just go, when I get lost in thinking about who you are, when I get lost in thinking about your character and your nature, when I get lost in thinking about how it is that you reveal yourself to us, it comforts my soul. Probably makes you wish you did it more. Give more time to it. But let's, let's look at another aspect of God's nature. He is creator. He is the one who has created. There is no such thing as self-creation. That would be a contradiction in terms. When Scripture reveals that God is the creator, it is telling us that he is the creator, but he himself was not created. That's another part of his self-existence. He's the creator, but he was not creator, created. It's impossible for something to create itself. I don't care what chat GPT tells you. Even it was created. It's amazing when we think about these truths. But you see, Moses is taking these truths about who God is, and he's applying them to the situation in his life. After all of the years that Moses had walked through, after all of the faithfulness of God to him, he still needed the comfort of being reminded of who God is. What's he doing? He's not finding his peace, his rest, his hope in his circumstances. He's finding all of those things in God alone. And it takes him from thinking of God as a refuge to seeing God as a dwelling place. He was regularly faced with his own temptations, his own failings. He was regularly faced with the pain and the knowledge of other people's failings as well. But he found God in the midst of all of those to be a dwelling place. 
I wonder today if we were to look at our lives, what would be revealed to be our dwelling place? What is the the thing that we run to? What is the thing that we rest in? I believe God is calling us today to find our dwelling place in Him. Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Do we find our dwelling place, our hope in things going right in this life? Or do we have the perspective not only that Moses had, But even in the new covenant in Romans chapter 8, we are called to as the people of God. I believe that God wants to do something in our hearts today. I believe that he wants to to speak a word of comfort by his eternal nature to everyone sitting in this room. I think that this next part is at times easy for us. To acknowledge our brevity. To acknowledge the brevity of this life. Let's continue to read Psalm 90, verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. What's Moses saying here? He's talking about how God doesn't measure time by human standards. No, he's eternal in his nature. He doesn't measure time in the way that we may. I don't know about you, but if I were to look at my lawn, this verse makes a lot of sense to me right now. But my grass is not renewed in the morning. But I know that there's a day coming when I won't be able to mow it enough in just a few short weeks. But right now there's this worry in my heart, isn't there? Perhaps some of you can identify with this. I know there's worry in my son's heart. He's the one that has to mow it. See, Moses is using nature to point us to a truth about God. He never withers and fades, even though the things of this earth are created with this rhythm that they will come and they will go. There are seasons that they come in. He's acknowledging our life is like that. It's not difficult, given news of the week, to recognize the brevity of life, is it? Heartbreaking. Question raising, right questions to ask. A righteous anger. Isn't it amazing to think? Many of the headlines that you may be thinking about right now that may be confusing to you, that may cause us to wonder, they bring a tremendous moral clarity, don't they? Life is brief. Life is brief. I think it's right that moral clarity come out of those moments. Even in the midst of confusion, reporters not even knowing how to 
accurately report the story. News of tragedy, news of triumph, news of the law, news of something new and unprecedented. It can sow confusion into the world, but yet it, for the heart of the believer, it can bring tremendous moral clarity. When we look at something and go, I'm not worried about pronouns right now, but I know that that's evil. I know that that's evil. That's a form of moral clarity. It reminds me that life is brief. Church, can we be a church that has a category for that? And rather than getting caught up in all of the flurry of news and the moment by moment, what has or hasn't been released, can we be a church that begins with weep with those who weep? See, that's, that's what moral clarity can lead to, a heart of compassion, because we recognize the brevity of life. Moses wants us to realize this. And he brings in this idea of God not measuring time in the same way that you and I do. I, I was awake, unfortunately, in the watches of the night last night. These watches run three hours. And he's saying that in the midst of our lives, for God, these things pass just so quickly. Last night for me did not pass quickly. I had one of those nights where because of the number of things going on in my own mind, I started to do that countdown. If I fall asleep right now, I'll get X amount of sleep. What am I doing? I'm measuring time. I'm crying out to God, give me the gift of sleep. Please, Lord. God doesn't measure time that way. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about a man who said to a dying believer, Farewell, my friend. I shall never see you again in the land of the living. The dying Christian replied, I will see you again in the land of the living because that's where I'm going. This is the land of the dying. Do we measure time rightly? Do we understand what God is doing even still today? I don't even know how to say this, church. Which is my way of warning you I'm about to say something offensive. Do we know how to die well? Uh, we're going to get back around to finishing strong, and I think that's the right place for us to go. But church, we should be an example because of our hope in Christ of people who die well. I don't hope that for anyone. But as a pastor, I want to say, church, let's live to die well.
I love you. Please hear my heart for you in saying it that way. Let's live to die well. So we should ponder God's eternality. We should acknowledge our brevity. Next, what does Moses turn to in the midst of this prayer? We should be broken at our depravity. Let's read together. Psalm 90, verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Moses took a turn here, didn't he? All of a sudden, he's not talking about the eternal nature of God. He's not talking about the brevity of life. He's taking a turn in this prayer. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. O glory. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What is Moses acknowledging here? We are a broken people to be sure because of the fall, but we are also in our own hearts a sinful people. Not only the whole world, but the body of God's people suffer from the presence and influence of unfaithful members. Those who are not living to die well, those who are not looking back on their life and acknowledging the brevity of life and the eternal nature of God, and as we're going to see in just a moment, God's charity, there is a suffering that that brings on the people of God. Perhaps you know this suffering when you realize that jokes like the the ventriloquist Jeff Dunham would tell that, you know, some people age like fine wine, and I know people that have aged more like milk. We can recognize that that's true for so many of us, isn't it? And if we don't give attention to these things, we will all age like milk. Curdled, crusty, dry. I felt it right there where I just went out on that limb a little bit. And it bowed. But I'm going to keep going. I don't want to get my theology from Jeff Dunham. But I want to recognize that there is a sinful nature in me that brings things from the past into the way that I interpret today. This week I've been dealing with a bit of an issue with my hip. I have no idea where it came from. I told you I'm getting old. And I remembered this week as I was walking Duncan, uh, it's the same hip that I dislocated in high school. I was taking a charge, the player ran through me, my hips spun around backwards. I remember my dad saying, you look like a pretzel out there, man. I remembered that because I was in agonizing pain. I tried everything. CBD oil wouldn't touch it. Ibuprofen wouldn't touch it. That little massage gun thing that we had didn't touch it. Actually, that hurt. All week I'm trying to get this to be something that there's a relief from this tension and this pain in my hip. It was affecting everything. If I was laying down, I felt it. If I was sitting down, I felt it. If I was walking, I felt it. There was not a moment in this week that I wasn't aware of that. And what I was thinking about is, this is an injury from when I was in high school that is affecting me today. 
See, we can see things like that in our life where there is something that we bring from our past into today and it causes a crippling pain. Imagine sin that is unresolved being brought into your life today and what that, the effects of that can be. As I began to think about it, I started to just think about the years to come. It's not like it's going to get better on its own. There has to be some kind of resolve. There has to be some type of intervention in the midst of that to be able to deal with that. And what I'm using my hip for is an illustration of the brokenness and the sin and the things that you've experienced in this life that when we carry it into different seasons of life, it will affect you. And yet God so richly provides a resolution for that. I was talking with my daughter this week, and we were talking about different things going on in life, and I remember saying to her, sweetheart, there is stuff that happened when I was younger that I do not understand why that happened to me. Why am I telling her that? Because I want her to know that not everything has an answer in this life. That's the hope we have in the life to come. But I want to train her. I want to train my children to not think of all only about this life. Why can't I come to this sense of closure for this thing that happened? Because that's for the life to come. I don't always know what God's up to. I just know he's always up to something. And what I want to do in the midst of that moment is I want to submit to him and I want to acknowledge his eternal nature. I want to acknowledge the brevity of my own life. I want to acknowledge the sin that happens in my own heart. I want to cast myself on mercy. Why do I need to do that? Because he sets our iniquities before him, the secret sins, in the light of his presence. It's interesting that Moses uses that language here, isn't it? Theologically, we know that there can be no sin in the presence of God. How is it that that we could enter in then? How is it that we might come into his presence How is it that in the midst of experiencing the toil and trouble of this life, the brokenness of this life, the things that we have exacted on others, the things that others have done to us, the sin that comes from our own heart, the thoughts that race through our own mind, how is it that any of that could stand? Moses has brought us to a point of tension, hasn't he? There's nothing in this world that can resolve where we're at now, is there? No, there is sin set before him. There is the power of the anger and the wrath of God. There is a holy fear of the presence of God. There is a tension here, isn't there? It leads us to wonder at God's charity. Read in verse 12 with me. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Some of your translations may read compassion there and not pity. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work 
of our hands. Notice how Moses acknowledges in the midst of God's eternal nature, in the midst of the brevity of our life, in the midst of the depravity and the sin in our own life, that we are called to be broken over how charitable God is with us. Now I want to be careful here in using words like charity and words like pity and compassion because they can be heard as a demeaning word. What they are is a coming to us word. It is a condensation that does not bring along with it condemnation. It is a stooping low to those that he has created and dealing with us charitably. Now we know today that this is done through the cross. We know that it is only the work of Christ. So in verse 13 when he says, return, O Lord, how long? There is an acknowledgement there. This word Lord is the only time that he has said Lord in this psalm where he is using the holy name of God, Yahweh. The one who is king and creator. And he is saying, king and creator, be compassionate with us. So how is it that we go from wrath to, and pity how is it that we turn from the things that we deserve from God to what we actually experience and receive from Him? Well, we can acknowledge today that this is the work of Christ. The greatest display of the charity of God was Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. In the midst of this Holy Week, we acknowledge that on Palm Sunday when He entered into Jerusalem, there was a declaration before all of the people Jesus Christ's kingly rule and reign. But see, he was not the Savior, the Messiah that they expected. He was the Savior they needed. In his compassion, what he did was he went to the cross and died for us. That we might experience not the wrath of God, not the anger of God, but the compassion and loving, stooping and coming near us in his charitable nature toward us. I am not at all trying to make God much more approachable. What I'm saying is, God approached us as the unlovely. When we could never approach Him as the holy. In His charity, He lavished His love on us through His only Son. He gave up His life. He experienced the breath that leaves like a sigh. And as he exhaled, he said, it is finished. What charity. So how do we respond to that kind of love? Well, the way Moses instructed us to. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. My daughter Ella next week, or two weeks from now, will turn 15. And her life is being numbered in years, not days. Moses says, teach us to number our days, and I was thinking about this, and y'all can pray for us.
She's finishing up her driver's ed so that we can get her driver's license. So while we are counting down the days until her 15th birthday when she can get her, driver, her learner's permit, there is a daily countdown happening. Just X number of days. Just X number of days. See, that's numbering your days. Just X number of days until I can get to this place. Do we know the number of days that God has given us? No. He does. He knows them perfectly. What we're crying out to him is for the wisdom to say, teach me to number our day, my days so that I'm living today in light of eternity. See, what I can't promise you today is tomorrow. Not all of us will experience the end of this day. Not all of us will experience tomorrow. I cannot guarantee you tomorrow what I can guarantee you is an eternity. And in the same way that we have choices to make in terms of how it is that we age, there are decisions that we can make today that says that I'm, I'm aiming to be that one who is sweet and wise in my aging. Or I'm making decisions today. I'm sowing the seeds today that will come back as decay and hurt and pain. In the same way that we can choose how it is that we age, we can choose an eternal future. I can't promise you tomorrow, but I can promise you eternity. Which eternity are you living for today? The one that Christ provides? The one filled with hope and glory? Or the one where you will experience what Moses acknowledged as an outpouring of the wrath of the Lord. Church, my prayer, those who may be guests here today, my prayer for you is that when your life on this earth ends with a sigh of your last breath, that this will be the closest to hell that you've ever gotten. What do I mean by that? See, those who are in Christ, those pains, those failings, that brokenness, that sin that you committed, that sin that's been committed against you, they're very real. But for those who are in Christ, that's the closest to hell you'll ever experience. So when you breathe your last on this earth and you breathe in glory, oh, what a day, a day that will be. But for those who are not in Christ, this earth is the closest to heaven you'll ever experience. I don't want that for anyone in this room. The thought that this broken, upside down, not the way God intended it world is the best that you'll ever experience breaks my heart for you. And there's a call for you today not to try to go back and get it all right, but to acknowledge the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. 
to believe, not in your efforts, not in your ability to gain, not in your ability to figure it all out, not in the ability to get your stuff together, not in your ability to explain away your life, not in your ability to say, well, this is kind of what was going on in my life at that time, and so you're trying to justify your actions. No. Put all of that work and effort away. And just say, Jesus is the only way. I will know heaven. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life that I can experience. I'm speaking primarily to our older members here today. This is what it means to have age. set an example for us as a church it's a life that says my hope is not in this world my hope is in the world to come so when we're talking about living today in light of that day when we're talking about setting an example for us as a church when we're talking about these these concepts what that looks like is a reality that says my hope is not in everything in my family looking right My hope is not in all of our finances looking just right. My hope is not in the story that I thought that my life was going to write in college. It looked exactly like that as I look back over my life. That means that you're putting hope in this life. And you know what that can look like at times? It can look like complaint, can't it? It can look like where we're com- constantly comparing today, the things that uh, our generations are experiencing today in light of days when you thought that life was right. I want to be careful with my words here. Church, we need you to set an example for us. What it looks like to live in a, with a hope that is not in this world. I personally think there are ways that I have been a part of failing our older members at times. As a church, we invested heavily in concepts of marriage, concepts of vocation, concepts of all aspects of seasons and stages of life except for one, aging. It weighs on me heavily. I see the fruit of it in our congregation. This church is not heaven's waiting room. This church is to the beacon of hope, is to be the beacon of hope for eternity, no matter your age. Here's the the span of life that I find myself living in these days. A couple weeks ago, Stephanie and I went to see a movie at noon on a Monday. Walked in, we were the youngest by about 30 years. 
except for that homeschool family that took up that whole row <laughs> in the auditorium. We went to see the Jesus Revolution, and I remember telling her, I said, babe, is this our future? Seeing movies at, on Monday at noon? That same week, I went with my boys to see Creed Three. By the way, the music is phenomenal. It's its own character. That's a different subject. So the movie started at 11.30 at night. We were walking to our car at Universal at 1.30 in the morning. Same week. This is the tension of the span of life that I find myself in right now. You see, nobody instructed me what it would be like for my mom to be single at this season of life. Nobody instructed her what it would look like to be single at this season of life. God's word does. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But there is a tension we live in, isn't there? As I'm working to have children graduate college, high school, I don't see that as a, a, a getting rid of them. or I see that as a launching point for life. That's an intense season. So is the season that mom's walking in, and, and there's Stephanie and I in that tension. Now, neither one of them adds some pressure. Please don't misunderstand. What I'm acknowledging here is, is that we need God's help, don't we? I'm not just talking about me and Steph. That's true. We need God's help to walk through seasons and stages of life. Because you know what? I don't know what I don't know. I have no idea what I don't know. I got to spend an extended time with my father-in-law yesterday when we were nine hours into a two-hour install on something. I said that right. And we were just talking about some of these things. We, we were talking about how there is a clear call for our life, every day of our life, to be lived on purpose for God's purposes. That's something that glorifies Him. And yet how little we talk about what that looks like in days of aging, when career is no longer even a second act, when your days have much more freedom and flexibility than you've ever experienced. And what my fear is, is that we will begin to see retirement as a finish line. And, and here's where I've... I hope you hear my heart here. What a false God that would be. I'm not telling you not to be wise. I'm not telling you to be a good steward of the resources God's provided. To quote Danny, don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'm calling you to. Hear what I'm calling us to as a church. I think that there may be a generation in this church that we have unintentionally put on the bench. Don't focus on them right now. Stay right with me. I'm concerned that there's a generation in this church that we have benched. I'm concerned that there's a generation that has benched themselves. You look back on the things that have happened in your life and you disqualify yourself from having anything to offer. If you've received Jesus Christ, you have the greatest of gifts to offer to anybody that you interact with. So get up off that bench and let's go. 
See, retirement is not the goal. Redeployment in the kingdom of God is. Retirement is not your aim. Redeployment in the mission that God has given you is. May it look different than you expected? Yes. Can God still be glorified in that? 100%. Let's go. If I've been a part of making you feel like you don't have a place in this church, would you forgive me? If there's anything that I've done that made you feel less than, would you forgive me? We need you. We need you to help us learn how to number our days. We need you to model for us what it looks like to gain a heart of wisdom. I need you. So when I say things like there's no unimportant member in this church, would you please stop ignoring that as if it's not for you too? When you hear me say something like every member of this church is vital, would you understand that that's you as well? Some years ago, A gentleman by the name of John Piper kind of burst on the scene with an illustration about seashells. Perhaps you've heard it. I don't want to assume that you have. At a gathering of college-age believers in a giant field, at an event called Passion One Day, he shared the story of two of the members of their church that were 80 years old that had been killed on the mission field. And he asked the question, Is that an example of a wasted life? Because everything that you may be receiving in the mail, everything that you may be seeing in advertisements that are targeted toward you, everything that you may be experiencing in this age of life that you have reached, don't ignore the fact that that's a blessing of God that you have years. That's a blessing. Your years are a blessing from him. He has provided these for you. The question is, what are you going to do with them for his glory? See, everything might be saying, soften the blow of finishing your life. And God never says that to us in his word. Piper would go on to say that instead of Living for the glory of God, we sell out for a dream of collecting seashells on the beaches of Punta Gorda, Florida. He named the city. He named the city Punta Gorda. I've lived in Florida all my life. I don't even know where that is. And here's my concern. There's a generation in this church that was on fire for God when they heard that. What my concern is, is that over the now 23 years since that message kind of burst onto the scene, we have begun to buy into the retirement lie. The American dream lie. And we have drifted from the call of God on our life. So founding generation, let's go. We need you. 
I believe that God wants to minister to us today. I said that I would get to, uh, i got to find out where I'm even at in my notes. I said that I would get to a place where we talk about finishing the race strong. And that's captured for us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 8. Where Paul says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid upon for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge. And he will award it to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul's encouraging Timothy, and in doing so, he doesn't just point back to his own example. He looks forward to the day when earthly faithfulness will be recognized and rewarded by heaven's king. What a Palm Sunday message. Being rewarded by heaven's king. Perhaps I can summarize what I believe God has for us as a church in Psalm 90 today. Not just for our founding generation, not just for those who are here in foundational days of their family. I believe this is for everybody hearing my voice right now. Psalm 90 for us as Metro Life Church is a call to live our lives in light of God's eternal plan. And his eternal plan of redemption provides hope for you and for me. This church needs our eldest members. God's not done working in you. He's not done using you for his purposes on this earth. I love the song that we'll start next Sunday with. It's called My Testimony. And the bridge of that song says this, if I'm not dead, you're not done. Oh, that we would have a healthy dose of that as a church. So be on mission. Train others. Give your life away. Still learning, still growing. But most of all, set an example. Model for us hope that is secured, hope that is anchored, hope that is held fast through Christ in eternity. Not in this world. Hold fast to that truth, church. Some years ago, I would have been early in ministry at the time, One of our new elders, Mike Gilland, wrote a song from Psalm chapter 90. I asked him to share that with us today. So as we begin to just prepare our minds for how the Lord wants to minister to us today, can you hear this song as a reflection on the truths of God's word?